While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. We all learned this in high school. Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. The cotton gin made it easier to grow cotton. That's all I needed to know for Mr. Cobb's sophomore U.S. history class, but you might not be surprised to know there's more to the story than that. In fact, the invention of the cotton gin is a major part of the story of the Industrial Revolution, a story that starts with silkworms. About 4,000 years ago, the Chinese began soaking silkworm cocoons in hot water to release the long filament that they're made of and began winding that silk onto a reel to weave into fabric. The advantage of silk, and I know this is a digression, but besides other advantages, is that the filament comes out as one long thread and the weaver doesn't have to splice multiple threads together. The same basic principle was in place when English factories began producing textiles made from American cotton. This is a moving through Georgia Extra, the cotton gin. When the Industrial Revolution hit England, the processes of twisting the cotton fiber into thread and weaving it were mechanized, and demand for cotton skyrocketed. At that time, cotton was mostly grown near the coast and on islands off Georgia. This was called black seed cotton, and it grew very well in sandy soil. The biggest advantage of black seed cotton was that the seeds could be easily removed, and there were already machines that could remove the seeds, Then they had been used in India for hundreds of years. Inland farmers could only grow what's called green seed cotton, and that variety had seeds that had to be removed by hand. Some attempts had been made through the years to make a mechanical seed remover, but often in the process the seeds were crushed and the leaking cottonseed oil would ruin the fibers. A cotton plant grows in about five months, and in the late 1700s, the fluffy white balls would be picked and collected by hand and pressed into bales. The bales were cotton, but they were also twigs and seeds, not ready yet for weaving. Cotton farms needed lots of hands, people to pick the cotton and people to remove the seeds and debris. Okay. The official story is that Eli Whitney, who was a Massachusetts native, was visiting a friend in the South and watched field hands cleaning the cotton with brushes. He realized that the process could be sped up by mechanically pulling the cotton through a set of wire teeth on a rotating cylinder. The cotton fiber would pass through a screen and the seeds wouldn't. It's a simple invention. It can be built pretty cheaply, and it can be powered by people, water, or animals. In 1794, Whitney received patent 72X, and production of the cotton gin went into high gear. Manufacturers throughout the South bought cotton gins just to disassemble them so they could produce copies. Whitney technically had the patent, but it wasn't the easiest thing to enforce. And in fact, Whitney may not have been the real father of the cotton gin at all. The cotton gin was one of those aha moments that strikes multiple people simultaneously. It's like the light bulb. 
manufacturing and electrical engineering technology had lined up just right at one point and two or three people had the idea for the light bulb simultaneously. Thomas Edison just had the claim that stuck. The story is that Whitney was working as a tutor for the children of Catherine Green, widow of Revolutionary War General Nathan Green, the owner of a plantation for cotton in Chatham County, Georgia. I saw a webpage for an exhibit at the U.S. Patent Office that explained that Mrs. Green had already more or less considered the process of cleaning cotton and believed that it could be automated. She encouraged Whitney to consider the problem and invent the actual device. At one point, Whitney showed her a prototype with wooden protrusions to grab the cotton, and she proceeded to demonstrate that metal teeth would be more effective. She actually inserted pieces of wire from one of her hairbrushes into the mechanism and showed that it worked better. As a woman, of course, she would never have received credit for the invention, but probably deserves at least a strong assist. Green supported Whitney financially through the invention process and also through the legal battles that followed. The original plan was for Whitney to set up cotton gins throughout the South. Farmers would leave two-fifths of their cotton behind as payment for the work. And even though the farmers would save an amazing amount of time, that's still a lot. I can't imagine that any farmer facing the prospect of paying 40% of his crop to have it processed wouldn't even consider the idea of building their own machine. Lots of them did, and some even added enough improvements to stake their own claim as the inventor of the cotton gin. Whitney had the patent, though, and he was willing to defend it in court because of a loophole in the patent law that favored people who copied existing technologies. Whitney's lawsuits failed over and over until an 1800 change in the law made it possible for him to successfully sue. But Whitney's idea of a southern chain of cotton gins was gone. He began licensing his idea to manufacturers and selling patent rights directly to states. In 1812, he did apply to renew his patent, but by this time he had more or less moved on. More on that later. The cotton gin was a crucial part in the industrialization of pretty much everywhere but the South. Cotton was cleaned in a cotton gin, spun and woven on machines, transported by railroad and steamboat, and exported to be worn by factory workers, mostly in New England and the UK. Demand for cotton pretty much doubled each decade after 1800, while tobacco exports fell, rice failed to grow, and sugar exports grew, but only in the Louisiana area. Around 1850, the South produced three-fifths of the U.S.'s total exports, 75% of the world's cotton. The only thing machines couldn't do, of course, was plant and pick the cotton. Now that inland growers could produce acres of green seed cotton, cheap labor was needed to maintain the profit margin. At the writing of the Constitution, a general agreement was made to end African slave importation in 1808, and in 1808, that ban was actually made official. Because of the boom in cotton, just prior to that decision, there were already almost 4 million slaves in the South to work the cotton plantation. 
Some historians believe that the constitutional framers believed that an end to slave importation would encourage the South to explore other economic avenues and that slavery would eventually just die out on its own. It didn't. Industrialization in other parts of the world increased the demand for the products of slave labor in the South. By the time of the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the Compromise of 1850, the South's only means to compete with more industrialized parts of the world was in cotton production, and many Southerners felt that freeing the slaves would cripple the Southern economy. Whitney fought for his patent rights until he couldn't afford to fight anymore. He didn't give up, though, and when a war with France was looming, he won a contract from the War Department to produce 10 to 15,000 muskets in two years. This was considerably faster than anyone else had done before, and he accomplished it with mass production and made a fortune in the process. Some historians actually credit Whitney before Ford with the invention of mass production and interchangeable parts. He didn't invent them, but he took those concepts and brought them into reality, then packaged them up under a lucrative government contract. His real legacy might be the salesmanship he used to take credit for inventions and innovations that were more the product of his time than the product of his mind. He does get credit, kinda, for one invention that he may actually have invented, but that wasn't built until after his death. It was a process to mill identical metal parts for muskets rather than fashioning each part by hand. All right, and I just want to remind you that Moving Through Georgia is a history podcast mostly focusing on history of Northeast Georgia. If you have any questions, comments, or complaints, I'd love to hear from you at movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com, all one word. Lastly, did you get this far without wondering why it was called a cotton gin? Apparently, the term gin was more or less interchangeable for the term engine in the south of the 1800s. Everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The yellow man left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. That's all. <laughs>